0: Hello, today is Thursday, August 4th, 2016, and this is episode 37 of Garbage.
1: Alright, we want to open the show by um, proposing something, and I guess regardless of what uh, the users say, we'll probably have a, a little bit of a direction, but we're thinking of not making the podcast a weekly thing anymore. Just to get out a little um, break from the routine of it. Maybe it's uh, when we have more interesting stuff to talk about. And uh, we're curious your guys' feedback on that. If you like the amount of content, if you like the amount of uh, like the duration of the show, or if you would like shorter shows less frequently and that would be cool, or you would just be devastated if we changed. (laughs) anyway we're probably just going to change to when we have more important uh things to discuss and more interesting things to put together rather than randomly complaining about things every week
0: yeah so don't uh unsubscribe or anything but uh i don't know at least for me like you know it's an hour plus of recording and then it's two hours or so of editing and uploading and editing the show notes and all that stuff and uh I don't know just gets to be a lot of work every week, and uh unlike writing open source software, I guess where you're uh scratching your own itch and then letting everyone else benefit from it, it just kind of feels like uh, it's a lot of work, and you and I have already had the conversation <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh it's just a lot of work for that i don't i mean I don't really even listen to the to my show any to the show anymore in my podcast app because I've had to listen to it like three times in the process of editing it so anyway um yeah so I guess just doing it every week it's starting to feel uh like a lot of work so maybe we'll just cut back to uh releasing shows randomly when either of us have you know something big to talk about or whatever um and in the last show I said that people should write in early so that we can do research on stuff and bunch of people wrote in and then I felt bad because I didn't like do any research. Um so I don't know, it's just it's a lot more time to devote to it uh than I guess just the length of our edited recording.
1: Yeah, and and I guess for me too, uh life is really busy at the same time. Yeah. And so it I mean, I carve out time to do this and I enjoy You know, carving out that time, but at the same time, there are a lot of things that get a little bit pushed back that I never get to, so it kind of opens the door for those types of things. I mean, you've heard me say I've been trying to make time to power on the EMMC controller for like three weeks now, and I literally, you know, I've been doing a ton of stuff, and I haven't been able to carve out any more time to work on that, so...
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah, I feel the same way. Um, It's just... You know, there's other stuff that we could be doing, I guess, um, but we don't want to completely end the show because I'm sure there's going to be stuff coming up that we'll want to talk about or whatever. Um, yep. So, like I said, don't unsubscribe from the feed, but uh, stuff. it'll be definitely more random than every week on uh, Friday morning.
1: Yep. So, speaking of user feedback and user inputs, uh, I have a couple things. Um the first is kind of fun. Uh, a, co- a colleague, I suppose, uh, proposed this new game called Reflex. It's out on Steam. It's available like on, I guess it's beta mode or whatever. You can get it for 10 bucks. early access to it, and it feels like Quake, first-person shooter. It's only available on Windows right now, um, but the, the team who's working on it seems pretty cool. They're... They're like, yeah, you can run your own servers, you can run your own settings and that kind of stuff. So, um, they're trying to build a really fast, really efficient game engine. It looks pretty cool, but maintains the same kind of feel of the older games. So, we'll see if in the year of 2016, if we have a new game that kind of, uh, I guess brings back and does justice to the, uh, 1990s Quake style games. <laughs> And they open source their game engine enough that we can write stuff and port stuff to other operating systems and run our own versions of the uh, the game and the server.
0: Nice. And now you'll have time to play it.
1: <laughs> and now I will have, <laughs> you know, maybe another 20 minutes. I mean, I love playing Quake, and I haven't jumped on, uh, on the OpenBSD Quake server in weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah. Which is a bummer because it's really a lot of fun when I get on there and there's a few people in there.
0: Cool. So, will we see a uh, port of that coming soon?
1: It doesn't look like uh, anytime soon, but I would like to reach out to the development team and see how they feel about it. And uh, who knows? Maybe they would be willing to do that. And, you know, we'd, and I'd offer it up as something where we'd buy the maps and just kind of talk about you know what kind of technology is being used right now. But it looks like it's an OpenGL game um, and all that kind of stuff. So it might be a bit of work to get the game engine ported over to uh, a Unix-style operating system.
0: Hmm.
1: All right, so another thing that um, was kind of like near and dear to my heart, someone emailed us, uh, who was this? Um, it looks like... There was an SSH client or chat program written in Go, which followed up. You know, my little discussion about uh, writing something in you know that behaved similar to SSH. And this is sent to us from Ben Ben Sweet, um, and he was like commenting that uh, he really loved the credential stuff you were talking about using. Uh, you know, you were talking about having to mount a file system using Fuse and uh, you know, to mount a Dropbox share, and he said, uh there's a another SSH chat program written in Go, and I went and I checked it out and I couldn't um I couldn't get it to work really. So uh it looks like right now the the thing on GitHub is uh in a non building state, so that's kind of a bummer. But it does look it does look pretty reasonable to me. Um the guy has a few things here so the idea behind this is it's an ssh server that's written in go and so when you ssh to the server instead of getting like a shell you're automatically logged into a chat um it reminds me of something similar that i did um you know the anoncvs.shar thing for mm-hmm. setting up um anoncvs servers yeah i did something similar in in go where i had a certain like i think it was like www or anon at when you SSH to that it puts you in a uh, terminal UI or it ran some terminal program that I wrote in Go and it was basically like a little dashboard or captive portal that uh, let you look at stuff on the server without giving you access to anything on the rest of the server mm-hmm. and I called it web 3.0 because it was essentially like you know you're looking at a quote unquote web resource over SSH And there's no JavaScript. There's no authentication. And obviously, if you needed to log into the app, you would uh, SSH, you know, user at host. And then it would ask you for your correct password. And then it would give you different access than the www or anonymous user. So it's kind of a joke. And that's, I think, what this looks a lot like. Uh, They wrote the entire SSH server in, in Go. And it gives you some chat program where you can manage... Or, where you can talk to your friends and do all that kind of stuff. And it looks pretty neat. Um, I don't know if I would replace the entire SSH daemon with a Go program, but, uh, they did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the cool thing about it is, um, when you use the SSH chat program that they give, you can give it, um, or the, yeah, this SSH chat server that they give, you give it an identity key. So you can use your normal SSH keys. So, um, give it a port to bind on and all that kind of stuff. And it is MIT licensed. So if you wanted to use this in a, you know, whatever kind of product you chose, you could do so under an open license. So it looks like a pretty neat idea. And I'm hoping that in the near future it's building again and it's working again because I'd like to give it a shot. I've kind of glanced over the code a little bit. And it's just idiomatic Go code, so there's nothing really I can say either way about it. But as of right now, the build is failing. There are no bounties. Uh, They have a bounty out on it if you find any vulnerabilities. And they have some good Go docs written. So thank you, Ben, for that. And thank you for uh, emailing us to let us know you appreciate the other stuff.
0: Uh, I also set up something like that at the old place that I worked at. And you could just SSH in and it would run like sysdat, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, something to note if you are doing something like that or setting up a chat server like this is, well, I guess it doesn't apply to this one because you're actually replacing the entire SSH daemon with this go program. Mm -hmm. But when you are running a uh, user and you like set their shell to whatever you want to, uh, um, to run, make sure you disable the other options in SSHD for that user um, same with the non-CVS, uh, so disable like port forwarding and, uh, all of the other things that you can do, um, that aren't related to your shell because you don't want people SSHing into your server, uh, with some anonymous account, but then opening up port forwards and doing all kinds of bad things that, uh, mm-hmm. don't require the shell.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Something I just wanted to mention, it wasn't feedback. Uh, somebody in the Metabug IRC channel pointed me to this, um, if you're ever on a server and you need to like get a bunch of text off of it and you don't want to or you can't like email it to yourself from that server, there's this website, sprunge.us. Uh-huh. I guess there's another one, ix.io, I think it was. Um, if you go to them in a browser, it'll give you the, the quick instructions, but you can basically just pipe data to it to like curl, and then it pipes it to this website. And then it's basically so it's basically like a paste bin kind of website, but you can access it from curl or from like a command line and then when you send all the data to it, it just uh, dumps back a really short url and so it's easy to like write that down or just type it in another terminal on another machine um, and then you can access all the the text that you uploaded um, obviously you wouldn't want to use it for anything sensitive but uh, I've had to use it a few times just between the, the few machines sitting on my desk because it was easier to pipe a d-message from a machine to curl and then curl to this website um, to get the d-message off of it than it was to like SSH or SCP it back to one of my other machines on my LAN. Um, so little tip for you, um, you can make it into like an easy shell uh, alias so that you can just do like curl or just like D message pipe sprunge or whatever, and, uh, just get a quick URL for it.
1: Yeah, that is useful. That's awesome.
0: So that was from the user light on metabug. Yeah.
1: Thanks light. So we had a couple other things that were emailed to us too. Um, Brian was asking us, uh, about a particular, uh, diff that was sent to tech, and it, it was uh, an email that says basically um, that Clang was reporting errors about undefined variables when building bin utils. And Brian was asking, like, is it a common thing that, you know, people run this against their code? Or is someone paid to do this? Or does a company do this in their spare time? And the answer is probably a little bit of all of the above. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes... Like, our own users, like, uh, I know Jonathan Gray, he does it all the time. He'll build stuff using LLVM and CLang because they report back different errors and they catch things that aren't in our uh, base GCC with our base GCC flags being used. And, um, so it's a, it's a good practice to get into. Um, you know, our base GCC has a lot of improvements made to it, but it doesn't have some of the stuff that is in the newer LLVM and CLang. So um, that is one case where, you know, sometimes people just build stuff with the other tools to find stuff, and you can run um, status, static code analyzers from LLVM and CLANG as well and catch other things. And I think that's probably what what happened here. And uh, we, we actually have gotten a couple other emails this week from uh, people who, let's see, I, I don't know if I'll be able to find it, but there's people who email into the list and they say, Hey, we found this vulnerability when we were doing a scan or an analysis of this particular program, and um, you know we we were able to this should be fixed, but we weren't able to gain like privilege escalation or something like that. So, uh, and those people are you know working at companies and they're using our code and they're analyzing it for a particular product or vetting it for a particular purpose, and so they'll email us in and say, hey, we found this. So it actually happens from Many, many different places. Every avenue that you asked about, Brian, it, it probably happens. You know, people just doing it, companies sponsoring work, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I can't find the email right now either. It was, I guess it was a little bit ago.
0: Um, yeah, people have uh, other developers have emailed me diffs uh, that to fix, like, a uh, certain variable initialization or something that are... GCC doesn't complain about but mm-hmm. uh, LLVM did so uh, yeah it's just nice to run your code through something else that gives you a different uh, perspective on it. Well,
1: what was the guy's name who used to run his uh, analyzer against the code and he's like you know I send in these diffs and you guys never appreciate them and all that kind of stuff uh, it was another static code analysis tool.
0: Oh it was yeah he wrote his own. Yeah yeah I can't remember that guy's name, but um yeah
1: it, it's the same type of thing where somebody you know is is working in a particular area of research and they you know they come up with a way to or a pattern to look for or a particular series of patterns that they've um, found studying various bugs and then the, they scan code for it to see how many places we do the similar type pattern, and actually that happens in the tree a lot. Theo will sometimes find something and he'll say, How many times are we doing this in other places? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, a few seconds later, they'll be like, Here's 35 instances of this happening. We need to get this out of here. We don't want to promote this paradigm. And then, you know, uh, they'll all get fixed and some of them will have nasty um, consequences. So we'll have to revert them and find another way to do it. But yeah, it happens in many different ways. And I think that's really all there is about that. Do you want to talk about the NFS inquiry that was made?
0: It was basically like benchmarking against other OSs and OpenBSD sucks, I think, which is not surprising at all.
1: Yeah, it wasn't really surprising because NFS as a whole kind of is not very good, I don't think. Yeah, I think
0: Theo is like the only one that cares about it because he still runs it at his house. Mm-hmm. among our build servers build and machines. stuff yeah
1: yeah all the build machines run nfs and you know when there's a problem with nfs or uvm or some other thing and things stop working you know we hear about it but i think for the most part nfs in in the wild is you know if you run it you kind of accept the fact that you're going to be restarting servers in order to fix hung stale mounts and uh, same thing is true for clients, I think, in in more cases than I'd like to admit. Um, but Jason actually did a pretty heavy write-up. Um, so thank you for taking the time to do this, Jason. Um, uh, he commented that you know how to pronounce his last name well, which is cool. But <laughs> he basically went in and he said he's using NFS on uh, various machines to store his music and that, and that kind of stuff. And he took some notes here um okay so open bsd 6.0 release it took 19 minutes to download all this uh music off of the nfs server to the client and it took something like 480 minutes to upload from his workstation up to the server that's like kind of a lot of time for what does he say it is like 48 gigs 47 gigs um And then, you know, he went in here and he outlined NetBSD 7, Dragonfly, and FreeBSD. And basically, um, OpenBSD doesn't fare too well compared to the other ones. Let's see, NetBSD did it in about half the time, about 9 minutes to download, and about 132 minutes to upload, so significantly faster on the upload. Dragonfly and FreeBSD, you'll find this interesting, but Dragonfly was measurably faster than uh, FreeBSD. So Dragonfly, he says it's about 11 and a half minutes to download and 17 minutes to upload, which is phenomenal. And FreeBSD, 11.0 Beta 3, um, about 19 minutes to download the information and about 26 minutes to upload the information. So, um, the download performance is kind of on par with OpenBSD. And the upload performance is worlds faster than our, um, NFS server works. So it's interesting to read. Um, NFS comes with a lot of sharp edges and I really, I mean, I I use it as much as I have to, but past that, no, not really. Um, I try and avoid it. And in fact, a lot of our servers at work, um, they try and share data by mounting different nfs shares and copying files around as if they're local but it turns out it's actually easier to just write an http server that you can post files to and run it on every server that you need to copy data to because it's significantly faster and um, more reliable by a a long shot than uh, using nfs
0: I would say that the, uh, the time that he gave was like 480 minutes and mm-hmm. everybody else was like seventeen twenty five. Mm-hmm. That sounds more like a network driver problem than NFS. Yep. So uh, I would say, Jason, you should like f- send this message to bugs or tech or something and see what somebody else says about it because that sounds more like a problem and not just, crappy performance.
1: Yeah, and and it's interesting too that um, I don't see the network card used here on the server or the client, but it's interesting that NetBSD and OpenBSD have similar more like anomalously high times. Mm-hmm. I would bet that they share the same network driver code to a certain extent where FreeBSD and DragonFly might have you know, significantly different networking code um I'd be curious to see how that works. Yeah. So that was all the the stuff that you guys emailed in about. Um interesting stuff to talk about for sure. Um I don't I don't think that was uh yeah, I think that was about all. We covered everything. Yeah. Uh
0: some open BSD news I guess. Yeah. The uh songs for the six point release are out. And there are three of them, I think.
1: Yeah, there are three of them available now. And some people in the OpenBSD channel on uh, Freenode were asking, you know, oh my gosh, the songs are available already. I think there's been three that have been made available before the release. Um, And just another clarification, too, is that we're already out of lock and, you know, doing new development and tons of things are being committed. So some people kind of wondered about that. They said, man, it seems kind of early. And yes, uh, I think that's part of the design of, you know, releasing the, I guess we're putting things up on the FTP site, you know, September-ish now rather than November. Mm -hmm. Is that right? And then, um, you know, because all like the CD sales and stuff are happening in a different cycle than the actual release of the software, we're out of the lock more quickly. It feels like.
0: Yeah. Which is good.
1: Yeah. Which is really good because it takes a lot of the pressure off. And I think too, because we have some hackathons that have been happening rather recently and there's a general hackathon coming up. Maybe it all happened more or earlier than it normally would have.
0: Uh, so you can check out the lyrics to these songs or, uh, Download them from uh, openbst.org slash lyrics dot yeah. um, I committed my TPM driver to fix, cool. suspend, and resume on ThinkPads and my Chromebook. Nice. And some other minor tweaks to other files. And that's all I got.
1: Yeah, I saw that people were commenting that... Um... That it shouldn't really attach to ISA and then like a few it was like a few minutes later you were like oh well here's an ACPI version of the same diff. How What was going on behind the scenes there? <laughs>
0: uh, I initially wrote it as an ACPI diff uh, uh-huh. and then I thought well not every machine that has the TPM chip would have a um, entry in the DSDT for it in ACPI mm-hmm. so I'll make it an ISA attachment because the address that the DSDT is probably going to provide is like this fixed address that every TPM chip lives at anyway. So why not just probe that address through, um, through the ISA attachment anyway? Right. Uh, cause it's probably going to be there. And so it'll show up on more machines. Um, and then Mark was like, well, why don't you make it a, or so I made it an ACPI attachment. Then I was like, nah, I'll change it to a, to an ISA attachment. So in my like local <laughs> Git tree that I have on my, Chromebook, um, I've gone back and forth between ACPI and ISA and then Mark was like, well, I wanted ACPI, so I was like, oh, okay, so I just got the old diff out of my Git tree that had that ACPI attachment. Very cool. Yeah, so it wasn't uh, too big of a deal there. So that's committed, so hopefully we can see if it fixes any people's issues. Um, Hopefully that ACPI EC diff can go in. Snapshot soon to see if that fixes anyone's problems or at least doesn't break them so that I can commit that and re-enable the keyboard backlight driver for Chromebooks by default.
1: yep uh, just to refresh everyone's memory, what was the issue with the uh, with the EC? Basically, what happened was we're we're trying to enable some burst mode, and uh, a lot of hardware I guess doesn't support that properly. So you basically handle Burst Mode but operate in Normal Mode, essentially.
0: So the EC on the Chromebook Pixel, which is Google's own EC, did not support uh, Burst Mode at the time that they released this. And um, the code since then has been updated to support it, but I don't want to reflash my uh, EC firmware. So our ACPI EC driver Tries to enable burst mode all the time, anytime it has to read data from the EC. And in Linux and FreeBSD, and uh, I can't remember if I looked anywhere else, they don't even use burst mode because it's right. so problematic. Um, so that's why the Chrome EC never supported burst mode because it only it probably runs Linux and they weren't using burst mode anyway. So our driver tries to enable burst mode and then uh, waits for the acknowledgement packet which never comes because the ec doesn't even support it so it would just sit there spinning trying to read the bit over and over again waiting for it to um, acknowledge and it never would and it would just hang the machine yep. so the diff that i had it uh will only enable it if um or so after it enables it it tries to read the status to see if verse mode is even on and if it's not then it doesn't try to read the acknowledgement packet because it knows Mm -hmm. it's not going to be there. So that's pretty much all it does. Um, So it just kind of knows that it never entered burst mode and won't spin forever um, because it doesn't really need burst mode in most of these situations anyway. Yeah. And FreeBSD and Linux have disabled it for like a decade because a lot of machines had issues with it. And so I was like, i commented on the tech list i was like well that's weird like that we've had it enabled for so long and that linux and freebsd had to disable it by default and um mark and theo both emailed me and were like no we've seen tons of problems related to it which is weird to me it's like well then why didn't anybody disable it in archery a long time ago because everybody else disabled it so anyway um i don't really expect too much fallout from this so i'm hoping uh it'll get committed
1: yeah. Exciting. That that's good stuff.
0: I uh looked at the uh, MMC stuff again. Mhm. Um, that diff that I sent you with the debugging was not very complete. So I made <laughs> a more complete dump of every MMC packet. Okay. And like um function uh, like kind of a short stack trace on uh, to show what each what function is calling the read and write and then the specific values and registers and everything. So yeah. it's a whole lot of output, but it was it's a lot more complete than what I sent you. So I started reviewing over that because the way that I like to debug this stuff is to basically look at something that works like Linux and then dump every register, like read and write from it, and then kind of annotate it just in vim um, and then start like figuring out where like functions start. And so it's like writing a whole bunch of stuff in this function and then um, basically just mapping out what is doing what, and then it makes it easier to uh, get the output from OpenBSD and then see what it's not doing or writing different values of and all that. Yeah. Um, But it's a ton of output, so.
1: (laughs) It really is. And the indication that Mark seemed to give is that uh, it just needed to be powered on before we started sending stuff to it. Well,
0: that's the same problem that I have with the touchscreen. Yeah. So I wonder if they're related.
1: Yeah, I think they probably are. And um, I remember looking through core boot code to try and find that device ID. And then I was looking in CBIOS because we actually boot that um, legacy through CBIOS. And I don't see it being initialized properly, or I didn't at the time. And then um, it basically, when I started to correspond with him back and forth, I was like, oh, I'm booting off the SD card. And he's like, well, then the other thing isn't going to be powered up and you're sending it stuff and nothing's coming back. And anyway, um, so hopefully that will, uh, will work. He actually was talking about another uh, EMMC device for an ARM board that had the exact same problem where our driver didn't do any, like, power-up or anything like that. And he said he uh, powered up the device and did some stuff, and then all of a sudden it worked. And then, um, so, anyway, it's probably along the same lines. And I don't think the driver should really be doing the initialization, but uh, I guess certain ACPI devices, um, or certain devices probably have ACPI hooks, Mm -hmm. That would allow this to happen a little bit more easily in the cases where, you know, something like Core Boot is um, booting CBIOS and they're not initializing the hardware on their own. But he indicated, and I tend to agree, that once it is powered on, that our driver should work with this uh, EMMC in in relatively, um, what is the word, performant mode. It's, it should negotiate low voltages and high speeds and all that kind of stuff rather well once it's powered on.
0: Um. Oh, okay. Then I'll take another, another look at it and stick that ACPI hook in there and see if it works.
1: Yep. Um, One other odd odd note about that, I'll throw this out there. Um, I powered on my Chromebook tonight, and it said that I had an update, and I restarted to install the update, and I noticed that the, the horribly white background that uh, flashes and blinds you when you turn on your screen... It said that a critical update was uh, being installed, you know, whatever, you know, don't reboot, don't power off, don't any of this stuff, and I'd never seen that before. And I think maybe that's what you were talking about with the the boot box being updated with um, support for, who knows, maybe, I don't know, the core boot got updates for burst mode or something like that. I don't know if that happens in in the boot box or not
0: uh had you been booted into chrome os yep oh well yeah then it just uh that's just it's normal update cycle oh, i think i saw something that they just pushed out an update recently for some security bug um but that's probably just the um
1: well critical updates i usually don't see unless they're flashing something in core boots or whatever so hmm. i will that's uh, what
0: boot mine into chrome os and see what it does
1: okay yeah weird stuff yeah that
0: would be neat if they updated something like the ec or the something helpful and not just some chrome os
1: junk well actually let me try that then because we can do that live on the air (laughs) the power of radio editing You actually, uh, updated your gist for this, uh, splash screen, didn't you? You overwrite, overwrote the image portion of that.
0: Uh, yeah, I finally, uh, took the deep dive into figuring out how to get rid of that annoying white developer mode screen that flashes for like two seconds before it kicks you to CBIOS. Mm -hmm. Because I've been having to reboot so often lately doing kernel stuff that, uh, you know, you're working in like a nice dim screen and have your environment set up and you reboot and then you get this blinding white screen at 100% backlight. Um, yeah. So I finally looked into it and figured out how they're stored in the V-boot, which is like before core boot Boots, um, if I'm remembering correctly. And then V-boot has these, um, like this big giant image, or like blob of bitmaps, and then it uses those to show, to like print to the screen, to show you like the developer warning and then, so I extracted all those images from that blob, and then used Google's utility to actually extract all the bitmaps from it and so you can actually see like all of the little um, it has like a bitmap for every possible language and then Mm. it just like kind of They're not, like, whole-screen images, but it, like, pieces them all together, and there's 225 of them. Um, So I edited the one that was, like, the root bitmap um, with just the white background and made it black and then tried to reassemble all the images into that blob, and then I wrote it back to... um, I reflashed that because you have to, like, pack it back into the full ROM and then Mm -hmm. flash that ROM with Flash ROM in uh, Chrome OS and so I was hoping that that would work, and then I rebooted, and I didn't get the black background with the, the graphical thing. All I got was a black background, like the text mode, and it just says in like normal text in the center of the screen, developer mode warning, which is kind of funny because it's not really a warning. It's just the literal string developer mode warning. <laughs> um, so that it, I must have screwed up the bitmap somehow, and it was falling back to its uh, default of just showing text for all those. And so I thought, whoa, well, if the user doesn't have to do that, I wonder if I can just blow away that uh, image blob altogether. So I ended up doing that, and it worked. So I just updated my gist to uh, show you how to quickly um, nullify that image blob. So now when you reboot, you don't get the terrible white screen. You just get a black screen that uh, with a line of text on it before it nice. dumps you to Corb- or, uh, CBIOS.
1: Nice. And, and just to be clear, you have to remove the right protect screw inside the Chromebook before you'll be able to flash that from within uh, Chrome os
0: yeah um, so the the steps that you're doing before this one in my gist are like how you do that and then you set like the GBB flags to automatically go to the to boot to CBIOS and then you show the um, developer mode screen for a short delay and all that so you have to do all that you have to remove the right protect screw to do all that anyway. So I figured if the user was doing that, they can do this quick hack to remove that white screen too.
1: Yeah. Um one thing I kind of wondered when you set the GBB stuff, Chrome or the Chrome docs recommend you doing that anyway if you're booted in developer mode um and they say something about like if power is lost uh it'll retain your settings. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed the the like phantom drain or transient drain on the battery when the chromebook is off
0: i have not
1: okay if i leave my chromebook completely powered off with developer mode enabled i have three chromebooks uh, the acer the hp and then this new hp and they all will drain the battery rather significantly the Through through the week, it's measurable. Like, it it might be completely dead by the end of the week. And somebody said that if developer mode is enabled, there are certain bugs that will uh, drain the battery. And I'm wondering if that's why they recommend setting those flags. Um, Maybe it kills some setting that's leaving a piece of hardware on when the machine is supposed to be powered down. I don't know, but...
0: Well, I think like the old bug used to be that if you set the flags to boot the legacy stuff by default, and then Mm. you, the machine lost its battery completely, that these flags would get uh, reset. And so when you would boot, it would want to boot Chrome OS. But if you had blown that away because you're doing development stuff, you would basically be screwed. So, uh, but they changed, um, I guess it's VBoot, so that it writes these or like keeps these flags in a different place that doesn't need constant power. So I'm not sure um, what is being constantly powered. Ah. Uh, um, are you just using Chrome OS?
1: Um, I am, yeah, and just then, using Chrome OS.
0: And then you hit the power off thing?
1: Yep. Huh. And it goes completely off. And I've, I've kind of like gone through the song and dance. And in fact, I was like, you know, what's still powered up? So I unplugged the battery from, like I had the machine opened up and I unplugged the battery from it and, Uh, I was like, hey, look, no more phantom drain. It isn't like a short inside the battery or anything. It is legitimately that something is powered on in order to maintain, like you're saying, like a a portion of the firmware needs power to retain its configuration or something like that.
0: Um, I wonder if you, instead of doing the shutdown from Chrome OS, if you go to the terminal and do like sudo halt-p, if Chrome OS doesn't actually power the whole thing down, but puts it into, like, a quick suspend mode or something.
1: It's possible. Um, It's entirely possible. So I
0: don't know. Maybe try that.
1: Interesting stuff with technology.
0: Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, mine's plugged in 24-7, so I don't know if... uh, And it's on all the time, so I haven't noticed if there's a power drain. I have noticed, though, that, like, um, I've left it unplugged for, like, a good part of the day um, just because I like unplugging it once in a while. And the mm-hmm. the battery life on it is really great. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I was doing like, I wasn't, you know, doing a make build, but I was, um, you know, compiling stuff here and there and, um, doing my usual stuff and, uh, yeah, the battery life was pretty good.
1: Yeah. I've had the same experience. I'm, I'm definitely getting a ton of battery life. I think my, uh, my X220, if I'm building stuff, I might see two and a half hours of battery, Wow. Um this I'm seeing upwards of like eight or nine, yeah doing whatever I feel like
0: in open b s d or chrome os
1: in open b s d oh
0: yeah cool,
1: but then my backlight's like twenty percent or twenty five percent or something low like that so
0: yeah uh something completely unrelated uh to have you ever listened to the reply all podcast huh- uh it's a pretty good podcast um they basically just talk about the internet and, like, um, stuff that happens on the internet. It's, like, not a technical show, but it's just covering stuff that's on the internet. And mm-hmm. so, like, they had a letter from somebody, and so, like, the hosts of the show would go and try and solve it by, like, actually doing, you know, journalism and, like, calling people and doing all this other stuff. Um, and so somebody wrote in and said that they had used this website called picturelife, um, dot com. And it Mm. was basically like a Flickr kind of thing where they just host all your photos. And they had gone to the website recently, and when they log in, none of their photos were there. And so they would try and reach out to the people, like the support people at Picture Life, and they didn't get any reply from them for a long time. And so then all these other people started having the same issue, and there was like a Facebook group, I guess, of people like, hey, what's happening with all our photos? Like, where did all this stuff go? And so this person had wrote to the show to complain about it and like see if they could figure out what was going on. So the host mm-hmm. of the show like actually tracked down the the guy that started the service. And um, I've actually met him through like some people I know in Chicago. Um, and he had started the this company and then he sold it like a few years back, I think, to some other company. And so he was talking to the guys on the show um, over the phone and he was saying like that he was he was a user of picture life still after the acquisition and that he doesn't know where his photos are either. And he was the (laughs) guy that wrote all the code or like, you know, wrote most of the code or whatever. And, um, but since it had changed hands, he doesn't know what's going on. So the owner or the guys on the show actually ended up tracking the guy down that owns the company now and tried to figure out what was going on. And I guess after the acquisition, um, the company like ran out of money. And so the colo facility that he had all the servers hosted at, was, like, Mm. kicking them out and saying, like, that they weren't going to give them their servers until they paid, like, a huge um, balance or whatever. So this guy was saying that, um, the new owner of the company was saying he was he had paid them, like, I don't know how many thousands of dollars, like, out of his own accounts just to get the servers back so that he could put them online somewhere else um, to get all these people's photos back. And the hosts of the show were, like, so you're paying all this money to get all these people's photos back. But like, surely once you put all the stuff back online, like the first thing that people are going to do is export all their photos and like go to another service. And he was like, yeah, that's fine. I just, you know, don't want to see all these people's photos lost forever. And they're like, well, what would you like? What would you tell all your users? And he's like, well, all my users should probably have backups of stuff and the hosts were like, well, you know, you don't really hear that too often now, like from these startups where they, they don't really advocate or they don't tell their users that you need to back up all your stuff. And the guy's like, well, that's just dumb. Like, you know, this is the internet. You have to have backups of all your stuff. You can't just rely on one company, even if it's my company. And I'm thinking like, this is something that like more people need to hear. And so I was glad that they were doing this on a podcast that kind of caters to like less technical people. Mm -hmm. But it just reminded me of like that, um there is no cloud sticker that it's just other people's computers yeah because you're basically just uploading all your stuff to someone else's computers and then you don't know what happens to them like in this case they get you know taken down by the company for non-payment right. so everybody should back up their stuff multiple times
1: Yeah, definitely. And even big companies, Google and Microsoft and Yahoo, they've had services and products go away and people have had their stuff missing. It's, I mean, it's even recently documented and those are big companies that have great processes and smart engineers and lots of uh, experience doing this and they've messed up. So yeah, I mean, you always got, back your stuff. you got
0: accidental data loss. You got your account could ha- get hacked. Somebody could go in and just tell the service to delete all your stuff and then you're screwed. Um, mm-hmm. I've heard of like Google just randomly shutting off someone's account for some reason and then never mm-hmm. telling them why, and they don't give them a person to call and like talk to about it. So your account can get screwed up somehow. You can just, you know, it's really easy to lose all your stuff. Um, I would definitely not uh, rely on any one company to be storing all your data.
1: Yep. Good advice. I like that.
0: Uh, so I guess that's all of the things that I had in my little uh, show notes here.
1: Yeah, me, me too. I don't have anything else to talk about. Um, so I guess we can kind of wrap this up, huh?
0: Yeah. So again, uh, we're not going to be back next week. Uh, we don't know when we're going to be back. But it'll be some point in the future we're not not coming back yeah um so stay subscribed and you'll just randomly get a new podcast from us one day and you'll be all excited and you'll be like oh man i haven't heard from these guys in a long time i wonder what they're up to um so that's it for this episode you can reach us on twitter at Gurbage fm or through our website at garbage.fm uh brandon where how can people reach you since they won't be hearing your voice every week
1: yeah reach out to me on twitter and if you use google plus you can find me on there as well
0: and i'm on the web at jcs.org and on twitter at jcs
1: that was a well-timed bark
0: (laughs) (laughs) and carl is at carl the wiener on instagram yeah, buddy. <sighs> so, what are you going to do with all your free time now?
1: Well, my free time, I I think I'm probably like I'm probably going to work on uh, all these projects that we talk about on the show. Yeah. I resurrected that application that I wrote and I was, you know, working on JavaScript stuff in Safari. And so this weekend I was trying to figure out things to do and all of a sudden I was like I got to write this picture uploader so I can just dump you know all my pictures there and be able to organize them and look through them and then the wiki thing where I can just write stuff and dump stuff. I want to get that in a little bit better condition. I'm probably going to start picking away at stuff like that. Um because work has had me I found like a really good balance, but work has had me steadily chewing through a bunch of stuff that is finally coming into fruition. And I'm so glad that instead of it getting to like 80 and 90%, and then like we table it, Mm -hmm. we're actually finishing stuff. And the problem with the last 10% is the last 10% of development means that there's like testing and acceptance testing and, um, deployment issues and migrations and cutovers. And so that's the last 10% of work turns into, you know, another large amount of effort. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think people at that point, are really want to give up. And right now we're doing a really good job as a, as a group and as a, a company of making sure we get these things done the right way. And I really applaud the efforts. So that's been going well. And I, I think now that I'm optimistic and seeing that stuff happen, I want to do it on my own stuff too.
0: Yeah.
1: Like I said, I had all this work that I put into these other applications and it's just sitting on the table sessions and cookies and authentication frameworks and term UIs for Web 3.0 over SSH and all this kind of stuff that I've you know, put time into. Mm -hmm. I need to solve a problem with it and put it together and start using it and letting it... You know, provide some sort of value to my life
0: that sounds like a good plan
1: yeah i hope i hope it turns out well what about you what are you gonna do
0: uh nothing <laughs> i'm just gonna not do anything and relax and uh yeah i don't know go do stuff i guess
1: sounds go find equally as good
0: things to do in my new town
1: All right. Yeah, I think you probably heard, you're like, what is that hard drive sound? I've got crickets and cicadas and all sorts of stuff outside making all sorts of noise. So that's what's in my town right now. (laughs) Nice.